Shamai, Kroisio, and welcome to the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcasts. I'm Stephen Hedges. Today we head off to Newport and meet one of the Knight brothers who've done so much for the Newport Club and cricket in South Wales. Before talking about the history of the club, we started by congratulating Mike and his brother Dave on their receiving of a British Empire medal in the recent New Year's Honours list. I think it'd be wrong of me not to mention, uh, first up, your award in the, the New Year's Honours list. Um, so you and your brother Dave, of course. And I was looking this morning on Glamorgan's website just to check that it had been posted on there. And there were some lovely words from Hugh Morris, the, the yeah. chief executive of Glamorgan. Um, yeah. I think he said the accolades were a testament to their tremendous passion and determination in promoting cricket throughout Wales. Very well deserved indeed. So I think we'd like to echo those uh, sentiments and to say well done on behalf of all of the cricket family in Wales. Okay, thanks, Steve. Uh, we're, we're proud, you know, to achieve the award. We, we didn't set out to do anything like that. It was, it was just, you know, work that was needed to be done to safeguard the future of the, of the cricket club, really. Uh, that's where it all stemmed from. But uh, really nice to get some recognition like that, you know, with the award of a British Empire medal. And you've also uh, done an interview with uh, Mark Frost, which is available, I think, on, on the Cricket Wales website and, and via other media too. It's on YouTube and so on. So what we wanted to try and do today was that there are lots of lovely stuff that's in that interview. So we're doing a slightly different slant, if you like, and looking back more at how you um, started developing, uh, recording a history of the club. When did you first really start taking a keen interest in doing that, Mike? Uh, well, I suppose when you've been involved with a club for 50 years, you know, you you pick up bits and pieces of information about the the history. Obviously, the club, you know, has is, is been a big club and an illustrious club. Fred Wangler, who's still our treasurer at the age of 90, I think he's in his 44th year of office. He would always talk about uh, historical bits and pieces from, from the club. But the main reason for, for doing the project stemmed from, we I think it was probably around about 2013, we were in the middle of a match against Port Talbot and we went around the table and everyone came up with a, a good wicket and it came to me and I said, well, I tell you what, mind, the, the wicket at Rodney Parade wasn't bad. When we finished playing at Rodney Parade, the wicket there was, was very good, you know, playing county cricket there. And Michael Clayton was out, was in the team. I think he was probably captain at that time. Michael turned round and he said, Mike, you know you said that game at Rodney Parade had a good wicket there. Where did they actually play there then? Was it on the middle of the rugby ground, was that? And at that point, I suddenly realised that here you are, the Newport captain in 2013. We were like 30 years away from losing the ground at Rodney Parade. And already we've lost our heritage. Our club captain, who is like Mr. Cricket, doesn't even know that there was a cricket ground at Rodney Parade. And it was that was the motivation, really, to start to get some something about the history recorded so that uh, we wouldn't lose our heritage and that the young players coming through would would learn about the, you know, the history of Newport. And what was there at the club at that time? Was there anything... Uh, in the clubhouse or um, did anybody have anything written down or that, that kind of you know hinted at uh, some of the history you wanted to tell? 
Well, I think Bob Mole, a local historian, had done a, a fair bit of work on the early history of the of the club, going back, you know, to the 1830s, and the club was founded in 1834. I think he takes the credit for a lot of that work. There were also two books from the Athletic Club records, the centenary of the first hundred years, and also another book later on, which had a, a cricket report in. So that was the information we had. Obviously, then, when we lost the ground at Rodney Parade, all the memorabilia was in the pavilion. And we didn't have a ground. We, we lost the ground in 19, uh, 1990. We had to play two years without any cricket, any ground at all. We played two years away from home. So where did all the memorabilia go? Well, the secretary took some stuff. The president took some stuff. The chairman took some stuff. We all had little bits and pieces of this memorabilia, but it was scattered everywhere. And again, I think then when the history project started to come together, we took on the squash building at Rodney at Spitty Park in 2015, which gave us access to, to some more rooms. And at that time then, it was a case of, right, well, we could turn one of these squash courts into a lovely museum, fulfil the... Uh, the legacy of the club, if you like, with a, with a museum and, more importantly, get some of this information back uh, in, into the hands of the cricket club for everyone to see. Let's go right the way back now and look at the club as it was formed in the 1830s. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the club was founded in 1834. For many years, it, we thought it was 1835, uh, I think we even celebrated our 150th anniversary a year a year too late. It eventually emerged that uh, Newport Cricket Club was formed in 1834. The Mummersham Merlin recorded the establishment of Newport Cricket Club uh, in 1834. It was one of the oldest clubs in, in Wales. Some of the list of, of members in 1856 showed that there were eight people who were or were to become mayor of Newport so I think that probably underlines the status of the club at that time you know with the quality of people involved in the club and also as well the annual subscription at that time which was half a guinea now that was a, a, a sum which was probably clubs wouldn't have charged that much for their members for probably another hundred years so uh, I think that was where it all started and and you know it's obviously had a very illustrious past where was the club playing its cricket at that time? Do you know? Yeah, at that time uh, in 1830s, it, it would have been at the Marsh. Well, even maybe at Lantanum. I think the early matches might have been played at Lantanum. But the club moved to the Marshes and they played at the Marshes until the early 1870s. And then they moved then to uh, Rodney Parade. Okay, and so what was the significant things that happened for the move to Rodney Parade? How did that come about? Uh, well, it was the formation of Newport Athletic Club uh, in 1870. I think there were the talk of the, uh, when they played at the marshes, you had athletics, you had rugby, you had cricket. And I think then at that time, Newport Athletic was formed. Lord Tredegar donated land and Newport Athletic Club went there on block a patch of land at the top end of the ground, which is what they use, call the cabbage patch now, just outside the uh, clubhouse building. 
that was the, the ground that the early cricket was played on, but rugby played on it, tennis played on it, and athletics played on it. It was all uh, it was all done in, in that way. There, there was what, just one patch of ground. There was no rugby ground and, and cricket ground at that time. And then as time went by, Lord Tredega donated more land for the rugby ground, which meant that rugby moved off and left the ground for cricket, tennis and athletics. And then at the later stage again, they he donated land for the cricket ground at the bottom end of the ground, which was the Rodney Bray cricket ground. So there was no county cricket at that time, or it was just beginning to f- to form. Um, but there were, um, well, perhaps the most famous name in uh, in cricket, English cricket history, uh, W. G. Grace. He came to the ground. Is that right? Played that? Yeah, W. G. Grace would have played at the ground many times. Uh, there are lots of references of a, a Monmouthshire twenty-two playing against an All England team, captained by W. G. Grace. Uh, there's a story as well about W.G. Grace coming over on the package boat from Clifton. He was generally successful against Newport. There are lots of references of him scoring uh, a century. Um, on the one particular occasion, he came over on the package boat with his team from Clifton, which stopped on the river right outside the cricket ground. They played the match. Newport needed seven or eight runs to win. And W.G. Grace took his players off the field and said, we've got to go. We've got to catch a package boat back. <laughs> and that was that was the end of the game. So uh, those type of stories are in, are in the club's records, you know. To, so, yeah, W.G. Grace was a, a fairly regular figure at the ground. Uh, Grace notoriously uh, took a lot of money in expenses, um, but there were also at that time uh, hired professional cricketers that played for clubs. Um, do you have any details of, of any of the professionals that played for Newport at the end of the 19th century? The three club professionals who were most well-known to Newport Cricket Club, and they were fantastic uh, players, were Silverlock, Steeples and Diver. They were the three professionals, and they played uh, a lot of their cricket together as well. Silverlock was with the club for 23 years. He was one of the best professionals, club professionals in the country. He, he earned £3 a week at that time, which was equivalent to some of the top professionals at the Old Full and Old Trafford. And also, uh, he'd have a winter retainer. Newport was one of the earliest clubs, certainly club cricket, to give their professionals a retainer to ensure that they played the following year. There's even a story of Silverlock going to South Africa by paddle steamer to play his cricket in South Africa during one winter. So, you know, imagine getting to South Africa by paddle steamer to play your winter cricket. You know, that was how highly regarded he was. Uh, Steeples was Dick with Iron Heart, uh, always remembered by those people in the, in the records as a man who was never beaten and undoubtedly the best fast bowler of his day in second-class cricket. That was how he's been described in club records. And then you've got Edwin Diver. He was a wicketkeeper batsman, distinguished county cricketer with Surrey and Warwickshire. He had the distinction that very few players have had who played for both the gentlemen and the players, which was effectively an England trial in those days. Uh, he was appointed by Newport as, as a coach and later became, became a club groundsman. So those three 
were three phenomenal players in the six-year period between 1903 and 1908. All three of them played in the same team together. So Newport had a, a pretty formidable team. Uh, and they, 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 you know, had professionals right the way through up until the end of the World War, up until the end of World War II. Harry Jarrett was probably the last of the true club professionals. Um, and I suppose another player in the club's history who was a professional was Jim McConnon. You know, Jim McConnon was a professional, but he was a professional footballer, not a professional cricketer. When he came to Newport, he came as a professional footballer. Signed from Aston Villa, signed for Lovell's Athletic, probably towards the end of his uh, footballing days, I suppose, playing at that level. But Lovell's were a you know a pretty well-known non-league sort of club at that time. He came and played football there. He had a knee injury. He played cricket, joined Newport Cricket Club. And Fred Wangler says that he was one of the best batsmen that he ever saw in net. He then went to Glamorgan. I think as a batsman, he was turned into an off-spin bowler, I think, by George Lavis. And he then went on to play a good career for Glamorgan. And also uh, he played for England. So Jim would be Newport's only England international cricketer. You've brought us forward nicely to that period, sort of in the interwar years and after, when first-class cricket came to Rodney Parade. Can you tell us a little bit about the background of that? The first Glamorgan match in Newport was in 1935. That was against Leicestershire. And part of the merge as well also involved Glamorgan seconds replacing Monmouthshire in the Minor Counties Championship. So I think when Glamorgan came to Newport, the matches were always well supported. And I think that was one of the attractions. And again, in the the club records, in the museum, uh, a notebook from the... Groundsman at Rodney Parade, Fred Cox, itemises the attendances and the gate receipts from uh, received from matches by Glamorgan during that period. And there's a very interesting one in 1949 in that Glamorgan played Yorkshire, which would be the year after Glamorgan won the championship in 48. So they obviously had a good, good side. They played Yorkshire in a county championship match at Newport on the first day. 11,000 people attended, and on the second day, 10,000 people attended. Unfortunately, Glamorgan lost within two days, and there was no third day. I expect the treasurer was a bit cheesed off about, about that. I but, think Glamorgan well, would bite your hand off for attendances like that these days, wouldn't they? Well, for the county championship match, you know, 11,000 on day one and 10,000 on day two is, is well, it's unheard of, isn't it? You know, to, but the success of those games, you know, led to to one or two matches being played right at Rodney Parade right the way through up until 1965 when the last county championship match against Warwickshire was played. One very notable match which has given prominence on, on the, uh, the stuff that you put onto the website uh, goes back to 1939. Can you tell us a little bit about that match? Well, again, I think that one goes down in folklore for Newport Cricket Club. I think it was affectionately called that match. Uh, the Rodney Program was one of the biggest in the country at that time. Uh, hosted many famous matches. Uh, lots of cricket history was created at the ground, but probably the the one that was most important and created most records was was the match between Glamorgan and Gloucestershire in 1939. Glamorgan had been bowled out for 196 in their first innings. 
before Wally Hammond scored a remarkable 302 for Gloucestershire in a, in a score of 505 for five, for five declared. Uh, and that remained as the highest ever score at the ground. And, and at the time, it was the highest score against Glamorgan. I think they've others passed that now. His uh, innings included three sixes and 35 fours and was his fourth triple century of his career, equaling a score against Glamorgan five years earlier at Bristol. One of the sixes was claimed to have smashed a window at the top of the huge power station at the bottom end of the of the ground. Now, when we played, as I said, it was a, it was a massive ground. I can only ever recall in twenty odd years of playing there, one six hit at that bottom end, which hit the wall, and that was at the base of the wall. We're talking about windows now, which are another twenty meters higher. So it must have been a phenomenal hit. And the, and the groundsman, Fred Cox, the athletic club groundsman at that time, Fred Cox, he actually kept a, a pane of the, the glass pane that had smashed the window and fallen down onto the ground. He actually kept that. It was on display in the pavilion. I can remember seeing it in the pavilion for a long, long time. But that was one of the items which was lost, unfortunately, when we oh, moved from there. Yeah. Um, so it was inevitable at that time that Glamorgan were, were going to get beaten probably by an innings. You know, they've scored just about 200 and Gloucester got over 500. Um, but Emma Davis had other ideas. And in the second innings, he scored 287 not out, which again remained a record score for a batsman for many years. It, it has been beaten. Steve James beat it, and I think it's been beaten since. Uh, but for many years, that was a record highest score for Glamorgan. And they replied to the Gloucester score with a, a, a fantastic second in his score of 557 for four to save the game. And I think that score might still be a record score for Glamorgan in the, in the second innings. I'd have to, I'd have to check that. Um, so although the match is, you know, remembered for Wally Hammond's 302 and Emrys Davis's 287 not out, there was someone else who had a significant part in the game, but he's never, ever, ever mentioned because of those two high scores. And that was Arnold Dyson. In the Glamorgan, the Glamorgan opening batsman in the first innings, he carried his bat for 99, 99 not out, batted right away throughout the innings. And in the second innings, he got 120. So you're looking at that game, uh, 1,278 runs scored in two and a half innings, actually. It was a drawn match in the end, but record scores. And, you know, it must, it must have been a really good wicket, you know, to, to get those scores. Thank you for all that, uh, Mike. T- tell us a little bit about the Western League, um, how that came about, how Newport started playing in it and what sort of cricket they played in it. Well, until, until 1971, all the cricket on Saturdays was played as friendly declaration matches. There were, there were no organised league cricket. As travel conditions improved, the building of the Seven Bridge, Newport, along with Cardiff and St. Fagans, became the founder members of the Western League in 1971. It was a league playing limit over cricket, 45 over cricket, against against some of the best clubs in the southwest of England. And, you know, it was a, a mouth-watering prospect. And I think those clubs were determined to make it uh, a success. Um, the league was created really for the best of the big town city clubs to play against each other. You had teams like Cheltenham, Bath, 
Clifton, Weston, Swindon, big city clubs, you know, lots of the Bristol clubs uh, and, and four teams in the league actually reach finals of, of the national knockout. So, you know, it's not a bad league when you've got four teams in it who have reached finals of a UK national knockout. So that was the standard. Uh, in 1979, the Western League representative team won the President's Trophy. That was a, a trophy for all the league teams in the whole of the UK. Uh, the, the Western League representative team won that, beat the Birmingham League, Mushfak Mohammed, in the final in 1979. So you had lots of, of top players, you know, linked to professional cricket, Glamorgan, Gloucestershire, Somerset, they played in the league. And then at that time as well, you were able to have overseas players. So you had some of the top overseas players, you know, that I can remember the Western League handbook and at the Western, back of the Western League handbook, there was a list of international cricketers who were played in the league. And it, it would go on for about three or four pages. But three of the, the main ones, you know, always spring to mind. Viv Richards played at Lansdowne, Alan Border played at Downend and Shane Warne played at Bristol, so we, we played against all of those, you know. Imagine turning up now and Shane Warne's playing against you. My claim to fame, actually, I got 76 not out in that match. <laughs> it was a big circle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was great, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to turn up and, and play against those players. Every game was a, a fantastic game and lovely grounds to, to play on as well. Very, very competitive league, you know. If, if, you, if you played well in that league, you know, you, you were a good player. And another name who was an important player for Newport at that time was a young player called Martin Roberts, who was a wicketkeeper batsman, came up from Cornwall, he was signed by Glamorgan, and he was allocated to Newport. He was one of three young players signed that winter. Martin Roberts was, was the one who came to us as a wicketkeeper batsman. Matt Maynard played for St Fagans, he was also signed. And the third one was Ian Smith. And he was signed by Glamorgan and he played for Cardiff. So the three of them came to join Glamorgan together and the three of them were allocated to the three uh, Western League clubs, Cardiff, Newport and St. Fagans. And I can remember a committee meeting in the middle of, uh, it was probably round about 1982, and the club chairman, Bill Jones, announced in the middle of the meeting that he'd had a letter from Glamorgan and they'd asked us to look after a new young player who they'd just signed and he'd be allocated to Newport, Martin Roberts. Someone excitedly said, oh, what type of player is he? What does he do? And Bill said, he, he's a wicketkeeper batsman. And Mike Rutledge, who was our wicketkeeper at that time, long-serving uh, member, turned around and he said, he's still heavily involved in the club, by the way. Mike now still as a volunteer, works on the ground, does a great lot of work with uh, the sponsorship committee. He turned around and he said, oh, great. I'll be the first ever player to be dropped in December because <laughs> Martin was obviously going to come in and take over the wicketkeeper's uh, position. But Martin was a great player for the club. As I say, it was a, a young side at that time. Dave and I were only very young, but we started to shape the side and things were difficult. And Martin was one of the players on the field who gave us a great deal of support. Very talented player, very committed player. He, he was a professional cricketer with Morgan, but he played every game for Newport. He'd play on a Saturday, he'd play on a Sunday, and to, to even allow Mike to have games on a Sunday, Martin would play on a Sunday, and he'd say, I, I don't want to keep working, I'll, bowl as, I'll play as a, and bowl as an off-spinner. 
Um, but he, he, he played, he was a tremendous asset to the team. And I remember his last match back in uh, 1991. He had just finished with Glamorgan at that time. He'd been released. It was his last season. So it was his last season with Newport. He was going back to Cornwall. And he played in the 1991 uh, West of England Classic Back Cup final for Newport. We played Canesham. And he was determined to go out, you know, with a good score and to be remembered. He, he would have always been remembered anyway because he was such a good player for us. But uh, he played in that cup final game. He went out and he batted superbly, scored 150. Man of the match. And we, we ended up winning the game. Um, but he, he was a top player. And coming into that team then as well, would have been uh, left-out spinner Phil North, who also went on then to play with Glamorgan uh, in in, the, in those those early nineteen ninety years. Um, so we had a young team, but it was a it was a strong team. And I think from that day to this, we've always prided ourselves on getting young players into the side, working with them, developing them. And, and helping them to achieve their potential. We've, we've got that ethos within the club. You know, we, we don't stand in the way of players. If we recognise potential, we get them in and we try to develop them and, and, and so they can reach their potential early. Of all the, the research and the background work that you've done, Mike, is, is there one particular memento or piece of memorabilia or artefact that sticks out for you, something that was a real find? Um, well, I'll give you a couple. Uh, we've got an 1856 frame members list, which is, is, is a cherished one. You know, there are lots of names on there. I mentioned those mayors back in 1856. Some of those names are recorded on that, uh, on that frame document. Also, the subscription fees that, that, that were paid at that time are on that document. So that will be one. Um, the, the frame picture of the Newport Athletic Club Pavilion Fund, new Pavilion Fund back in 1901. We've got a framed copy of, of that, um, listing the donations and the plans of the new Victorian Pavilion to be built in 1901. Uh, that would be a, another one. Um, and then there's an invitation to the opening match at Rodney Parade back in 1901, which relates to the opening of the Pavilion as well. So both of those uh, mementos sit proudly along the model of the pavilion that we had made uh, when we moved into the pavilion uh, into the museum a few years ago so those those would be the the main ones but we're having uh, we're having stuff sent to us all all the time just before Christmas I received a silver plated goblet from a lady in Australia um, it was won by Herbert Lynn, uh, Herbert Lynn L-Y-N-E in 1870 at an athletics meeting on the marshes in 1870 and she had done some history identified the link with Newport Cricket Club and asked if we wanted to receive this goblet and you know we said yes and lo and behold over the Christmas period uh, a letter from Royal Mail or parcel from Royal Mail and, and it was this goblet and the link to Newport Cricket Club was uh, his brother who was Horace Lynn, played rugby for Wales, cricket for Newport. He actually donated uh, money, £50, I think, for the Pavilion Fund Appeal. So his name is on that document. And we've just, you know, 
received the goblet that his brother won in an athletics meeting at the marshes in in 1870. So we've put those two together. So they've come back together after 100 years of, of being apart, you know. So little things like that, uh, it's just amazing what the the history and the heritage uh, bring, brings up, you know. We we had a, a, another picture which we, we couldn't put a date to. Uh, and out of the blue, a lady, I had a letter, uh, email from a lady in Ireland who said uh, she'd been... Uh, doing some research and uh, father lived in Newport, loved cricket and she'd come across some cricket photos. Would we be interested? Early 1900s. Oh, fantastic. That'd be great to get some pictures of those. She then went on to say, um, I'm not sure what pictures they are, but she said the one is a Newport veterans team. And I felt, oh God, I was hoping it was going to be a Newport first team. So, a few days transpired, sure enough, I get the postcard picture of this Newport Veterans team, and it's a Newport Veterans team in 1914. And I look at the photograph, and all of a sudden there's a few little things start clicking, and I suddenly relate it to the picture that I've got that I can't put the year to. And when I put them side by side, I can see that... They must have been taken on the same day because the chairs and everything else are in the same position. Exactly the same position. The windows in the background are the same place. Everything is exactly the same place. The one team must have got up and the other team must have sat down. And when I looked at it, I went back in the records and looked up. And in 1914, just before the war, a Newport veterans team came back together to play the Newport first team. And it's recorded with the scoreboard and with the score uh, sheet and everything. And we knew some of the players on the picture that I had, they also played in the veterans team because they were older players and it was only a friendly. So they went on both photographs. So it was very easy then to be able to start and wearing the same, wearing the same clothes, exactly the same, you know. To, so it was very easy to put a link to it. And it was a 1914 photograph able to be put back together simply because this lady had sent a, a, a picture of a 1914 Newport veterans team at that time. And it, and it was that match that, uh, that was played. And so fantastic, you know, the, all those things which uh, are there for the history of the club to, for everyone to see. Sounds like the historian's joy at uh, discovering the, the the answer to a puzzle. Yeah, oh yeah, you know, really, when, when you get that sort of email, you, you just go, wow, you know, 1870? <laughs> That's, you know, 100, 150 years ago. Um, you did so, mention right at the beginning how you would, one of the things that made you want to, work on the history of the club was trying to maintain people's memories of, of the heritage and, and the past. And th there was a lovely thing that happened. I mean, it was difficult for the club when Rodney parades uh, had to end, but you did a beautiful thing with this Ashes game. Do you want to tell us about that? The last match actually played on the ground was a match between Newport and Cardiff. We decided that we would play a match against, uh, against Cardiff. And going back in history... The, the game against Cardiff took place because in 1901, when the ground and the pavilion was opened, Newport played Cardiff. To, that was the first match on the ground. So we thought it would be fitting to play the last match on the ground 
and play our old rivals, Cardiff. So we decided to play the, the match against Cardiff and it was to be um, a Vic, because of the link with Victorian times, it was decided that the two captains, I was captain for Newport at that time, KD Williams was captain of Cardiff, it was decided that two captains would wear Victorian costume for the toss of the coin. So Ken and I go out to toss dressed in Victorian costume. The mayor was there, other dignitaries were there. And a guy came out, he opened his uh, briefcase and he came out. I was captain, home captain, I'm going to toss the coin. He opened his briefcase and he gave me a, a silver coin. I tossed it in the air, landed on the floor, went down to pick it up to see who had won the toss. When I looked at the coin, I didn't know whether it was a head or a tail. So I'd never seen the coin like that before. And I had to get the guy who'd given it to me from the museum to come in and tell me, Ken, Ken Williams had called heads. He had to come in and tell me that it was actually on tails and that I'd won the toss. So we were able to, to bat first. And I, I said, right, we'll bat. And, and that was it. We played the game. Uh, very emotional game, you know, it's the last game on the ground for, you know, for everyone. I think everyone knew that. We had pictures taken with both teams on the pavilion steps before the game. At the end of the game, we decided that we would have a ceremonial burning of the stumps. So at the end of the game, the stumps were burned. The, we had a, a bugler there who played the last post. The bales were... Ashes were collected. They were put into a little blue glass urn, lovely little trophy which we had bought. And uh, the club's youngest player and the club's oldest player, Fred Wangler being the oldest player, and Doug Kershaw being the youngest player, they were presented with the trophy and they walked up the pavilion steps to the sound of the last post being played. And the trophy was presented to the captain of Cardiff, who would look after the Ashes trophy for safekeeping. And every time Newport played against Cardiff in the future, we would play for that Ashes trophy. Now, at that time, we didn't have a ground to go to. We, in 1990, we lost Rodney Parade. We were playing two years away from Newport. We didn't have a ground to go to. So we didn't have anywhere to put it. So Cardiff, we asked Cardiff if they would look after the trophy, which they agreed to do. So that was the end of a lovely day. Well, no, it wasn't a lovely day. It was a very, very sad day. I remember driving out, Dave saying to me, we won't see county cricket in Newport ever again. And we both refused to look back over our shoulder at the ground because it had meant so much to us, you know. Um, time passed by, the following year came, we played against Cardiff. During the week leading up to the match, we asked if, uh, if they had the trophy and they could have the trophy ready to be presented at the end of the game. And they said, fine. The week went through and we had another phone call saying that they were having difficulty finding the trophy. They couldn't find the trophy. We were obviously at upset because you know it would they were going to look after it for us but they'd lost a trophy but they said that they knew it was important and that they wanted to buy a new trophy so they did buy a new trophy a magnificent cup and that's the trophy we play for now when we play against Cardiff every year 
the the original uh, trophy was was lost somewhere. To, but we we play for a lovely trophy now against Cardiff every time we play in the uh, in the in the South Wales Premier League. I think anyone listening to you uh, talk about that, Mike, will see how important the history of of your club is to you. Um, what would you say to clubs about trying to record their history? Um, do you think it, recording it and, and making a, a place for it is a very important part of what a cricket club can do? The history doesn't probably mean as much to the people who are currently in the club as the ones that it did in the past. But in a hundred years' time, it will. So I think it's important, you know, for all clubs have got a story, all clubs have got, you know, something to tell and some something to share. You know, it's, it's nice to be able to do that. And I look back now and I, I, I say, well, you know, to see all that information recorded, it's there, it's in for posterity, you know, it's it's in a, in a museum, it's, you know, we've, we've sent it to... Uh, people's collection Wales it's documented in those sort of places so the history of Newport Cricket Club will will be remembered you know and I think the other thing as well when you've got a tradition like that I think you know people who turn up and play for Newport Cricket Club I don't they recognize I think that they're playing playing for something special it's not just a, another cricket club. It's a, a cricket club, which is a very important club. It's got an illustrious past. And I think that they turn up knowing that there's an expectation on them to live up to the players who have played for the club in the past. And also the challenge for them is to create your own history. You'd be a part of history as well. So that in 20, 30, 40 years time, when people are looking back, they see your name in history as well, which is a is a real nice challenge for them, you know. Many thanks to Mike Knight of Newport Cricket Club for that enthralling history and personal recollection of cricket at Rodney Parade. If you want to find out a little more yourselves, then do visit the Newport Club website at www.newportcricketclub.co.uk and click on the history link on the homepage. Our next official episode will be available in two weeks and that will be an interview with Swansea academic Richard Thomas who's written a book that takes us on a whirlwind tour of the history of the game of cricket. Next week we have another bonus episode marking the centenary of the date on which Glamorgan were accepted by the MCC as the 17th county to play first class cricket. We'll bring you the story through interviews with Dr Andrew Hignall of the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket and Martin Johns Professor of History at Swansea University and author of A History of Sport in Wales. Diochem Randall, thanks for listening. Do join us again when we'll be hearing some more stories about the great game of cricket in the great country of Wales. Oyelva. Story you have me, Granny. Macrosic Gesilti. A bossuch MWC pod nineteen twenty one at gmail.com. Nate, Elkintidal in Facebook, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast. Nate, Intidal in Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod. Do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If so, please contact email MWC pod nineteen twenty one at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast, or our Twitter, 
at Welsh Cricket Pod.